Today, uh, we are continuing in our series called Dark Night of the Soul. Uh, next week is the last week of this series before we jump into the Gospel of Mark again during the six weeks of Lent. So you're going to want to join us for that. This week, uh, I have a friend and a guest speaker here this morning speaking to us. Uh, his name is Ken White. He is the former lead pastor of Huron Hills Church, which is on the north side of Ann Arbor. He was there for over 10 years. Uh, before that, he was the associate pastor. He and his wife now currently reside in Minnesota, and they have kids uh, who live in Ann Arbor? One in Ann Arbor. Well, one in yeah. Ann Arbor, another in Detroit, so he's often back in town. And so uh, I asked him a number of weeks ago, hey, you want to come and, and talk to us about the dark night of the soul? So would you join uh, together in giving Ken a warm welcome to Grace Ann Arbor this morning? Thanks. always a privilege to come and give God's word to a congregation of people of God. And just a little bit about myself, Sung said a few things there. Sung and I got to know each other a little bit because he was applying to an Eli Lilly sabbatical and I had received that and so we kind of talked about that and for both of us that was a very significant time. I got to know Sung and just really appreciate his ministry and his leadership here. I came to the University of Michigan and was a graduate in 1982. Uh, both of my boys, Jonathan and Jesse, who are 26 and 22, they also went to the University of Michigan, as did my daughter-in-law, Kendra. So we're a really big Go Blue family. My wife has actually started a master's in global health at Northwestern, so she entered into the Big Ten family. And it was really disturbing last year when Michigan was playing Northwestern, and she said, you know, I think I'm going to root for Northwestern. I was like, I was like, what? And I was really glad that the game was over after 10 seconds. It was just awesome. Well, I uh, had said to Sung, I would love to be able to preach here and be able to do whatever you guys are in, whatever series, and he said, we're in the dark night of the soul. And I thought, that's a really important topic. And as a pastor... I've really walked through that with people, with myself. And I remember several years ago, a young man took his own life, and we had to walk into that family. We'd go and help them to plan a funeral service. And I've never actually been in a room that just felt so brittle. And about a year later, I ran into the mother, and I just said to her, Mary, um, how are you doing? And she said, every day is harder than the day before. And I just thought, that's a dark night. That's a really hard place to be. And it's really important for the people of God to walk with other people who are going through the dark night. Because here's an unfortunate thing. Most of us are going to walk through a dark night ourselves. And today I'm going to talk about the guidance of the dark night of the soul. Because the dark night of the soul actually is a phrase or it's a concept that's over 600 years old. It started with a couple of uh, Catholic priests and a nun, St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, and they talked about this relationship we have with God and how at different times we move into a difficult place. And as we go into that, we encounter God in a different kind of way. And they talked about this as the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is a spiritual transition 
often arising from loss. And so when you're experiencing it, it's not exactly the loss itself. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a kind of spiritual malady that we go through. It's a time in which destructive attachments are revealed and lost. It's a time of of disorientation. For the originators, they also translated dark a little bit differently than we, we would because the Spanish word is actually the word we would use for obscure. So you could call it the obscure night of the soul. It's a time of confusion. I remember one time I was going through a time of confusion and I love to sail, so I was out sailing with a friend of mine. We, we go up to this place in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan with a family camp of pastors. And we were sailing on this beautiful day, and she asked me, you know, how are you, how are you doing? What's going on with you? And I just said to her, I'm just confused all the time. I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know what's going on in my life. And if you've ever experienced that kind of confusion, you have possibly been going through the dark night of the soul. So it's a time in which our relationship with God is often hidden or obscured. A time we may lose a sense of God's presence or even favor. The dark night of the soul may arise from losses like job change, kids growing older, becoming an empty nester. I remember I drove our youngest son, Jesse, to DePaul. He decided to spend his first year at DePaul, even though he had been accepted at Michigan. I was like, I I don't think you should do that. That's what I was thinking inside. I don't know if I articulated it. Later, I found out from everybody in my family that I was articulating it all the time. (laughs) We got into a car, and we drove four and a half hours to DePaul, took about an hour and a half, and unloaded everything. And my my younger son, he doesn't talk a lot. So it was basically, are you all set? Yep. Okay. Okay, well, I'm going now. All right. I got into the car and drove four and a half hours back and went up to his room and sat on his bed. And a lot of you are, you know, nodding like, yep. It was a momentary dark moment. It was a moment in which I just felt this loss. And so we feel that loss. Sometimes we get it from just growing older. Sometimes we, we get it because we perceive that we've gone through a failure We also receive it when we're aging, which is also known as the loss of youth. And all of these different things are experiences that add to the dark night of the soul. Now, these losses may be accompanied by isolation and loneliness, confusion of identity, displacement, feeling of being in exile. The dark night of the soul can be compounded by sickness depression, and other forms of suffering. And so as you're, you're going through this, you're thinking, what in the world is God doing? And you may feel like Lauren Winner describes in her recent book, Still, when she talks about her own crisis of faith. She describes what this may look like for churchgoers. And I just found this to be very apt. She says, as she sat in the back row of her church, that people in the dark night of the soul find themselves unsure if they want to be in church, unsure if they can be in church. And so they literally sit on the margins. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking to you back row people. I'm not, this isn't, you know. But I've done that. I've come into places that I don't know very well, 
And I could sit up front, but I sit in the back and I feel myself, that distance sort of describes the distance I feel from God. And many times I've seen as people come into the church, they're feeling this sense of they just don't really know how they should relate to God or if they can relate to God at all. And old spiritual activities that would have given them a sense of closeness to God, they don't work. And it seems as if an alien God directs your life. Like you believe in God, you still think that God is there, but he feels like he's from another universe. But the dark night of a soul is a journey where we learn about the love of God. Sorry, I'm just, I'm new to this, so I'm gonna have to just go through here like that. Because we come to this new sense of God's love, John says the dark night of the soul is happy and glad and guiding and full of absolute grace, which is odd, don't you think? You're feeling this this confusion and this darkness, and yet the originator of this phrase says, no, it's actually a guiding light. This is what he wrote. He actually was a poet. He said, oh, you guiding night. Oh, night more kindly than the dawn. Oh, you night that united lover with beloved, the beloved in the love transformed. Because what happens in the dark night of the soul is that we're changed. We're changed through it because the things that we had wedded ourselves to, which were not God, fall away. These attachments go away. And as the attachments go away, it's not like a Lego falling off a Lego. I've often wondered if a Lego was alive, what it would feel like if a Lego would come off of a Lego. Probably not really that bad, I would think. But the attachments we have are not like that. They feel like scabs being ripped off of us. And yet, those things need to go in order for something else to come in. And so as we, as we come into this time, what I'd like us to do is to offer our hearts up to God. Some of us have felt a little bit distant from God, maybe haven't prayed in a while. So I just want to open us up to this and then talk about where we're going to go from there. So let's pray together. We Thank you, our Father, for your grace and your mercy to us, your love, your kindness, your kindness every single day of our life. And it's our deep prayer this moment that you would come into our time together, that you would help us and guide us and direct us, that you would open our heart to you in a way that we have maybe perhaps closed for a while. Open our heart through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to talk about how to find the guidance during the dark night of the soul from Romans 8. And you could, if you have your Bible, I've got mine on my my iPhone, you can open up to Romans 8. We're going to look at a few kind of signposts throughout that. And if you know Romans, you know that what Paul is doing is he's talking about the universal malady that everybody has, which is to fall into sin and separation from God. And that he brings people back into alliance with himself, into unity with him, by sending his son into the world to die in our place on the cross. This sacrifice is in our place. We should have died in that place, but Jesus does it for us. And he just lays that out in just an incredible way until he comes to Romans 8, which is one of the most important sets of passages in the Bible. It's kind of 
the apex of Romans, and therefore it's the eight, one of the apexes of Scripture itself. And I'm going to talk about four points today about how to be guided by the dark night of the soul, and that's to accept forgiveness, to be a child, to let God pray, and to trust God as good. And in these, we're going to be moving from attachments into the love of God. So one point will be about moving from attachments. The next point will be loving God. The third point will be moving from attachments. And then the fourth point will be into the love of God. So the first one is to accept forgiveness. To accept forgiveness. And this is a way of detaching from sin. The classic passage in Romans is the very first one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. And yet, if you're like me, oftentimes, we somehow feel condemned. We don't feel right in our soul. And Jesus has paid the cost for our sins. So when we don't accept forgiveness, the dark night of the soul becomes more obscure and darker. And so the sin doesn't exactly cause the dark night of the soul. It accentuates it. You're feeling far from God. You don't know what's going on in your life. And you're a sinner. So the sin kind of piles up and you just need to take care of it. Jesus, as the representative Messiah, dies as a sin offering in order that it might there be dealt with, be condemned once, and for all, once and for all. And that's why Romans 8.1 is one of those passages which I find that most people have sort of automatically memorized, and yet we have to go back to it all the time. And when we allow sin in our life and we don't detach from it, see, the, the problem with sin is we like to sin. There's some attractiveness to it. And yet, when we really come down to it, we have to detach from it. So let me tell you about an attractive sin that a lot of people just sort of fall into, and they don't really even realize they're doing it. And it's anger. Now, anger in and of itself doesn't have to be a sin, but most of the time, it leads you into really bad places. And if you want to know what's going on in your mind, all you have to do is access where your anger is taking you. And you find that again and again, it's causing you to, to be really upset about people. And that upsetness leads you into this downward spiral that you seem to not be able to get out of. One of the persons who writes about the dark night of the soul, Gerald May, says this. We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we are terrified of losing them. The classic spiritual term for this compulsive condition is attachment. That's why we have to detach from sin. So how do, we, how do we do that? See, in Protestant circles, the way we do it is we generally just sort of open the Bible up in the morning and we confess our sins. And then we go through the day and the anger or whatever sin it is starts to take a hold of us and we need to break the power of sin. Not the ultimate power of sin, because that's already been broken for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. But we all know that we experience these things on a day-to-day -day basis. So what does the Bible say to us about how to break this? It's to do this. It's con to confess to another person. Now, 
you need to choose that person really well. Person with great spiritual depth. Somebody who is safe for you. And a number of years ago, I was visiting with an Anglican priest friend of mine. He's, he's one of the friends that I know from my pastor's seminar camp. And Matt and I were talking, and he'd gone through some things that were really, really hard for him. And he looked at me, you know, and I was, I was sitting at this counter, and I was kind of feeling kind of sick. And uh, his way of kind of helping me through my sickness was to give me some Glenlivet whiskey. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't really drink at all. He said, no, you try this. I was like, oh, all right. So I took a sip. I was like, this isn't, this isn't working for me. Um, but, you know, we sat there, and there was sort of this fellowship we had, and he was talking about his life, and he said, you know what really surprised me was the hatred that I felt. Now, if you know Matt, he's the most loving, kind person you could ever meet, and I just thought to myself, yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about. And so I started to think about Matt and the fact that as an Anglican priest, he was very skilled at confessing sins. So I said to him, you know, Matt, I'm just thinking maybe I should come and confess my sins to you. He's like, yeah, why don't you do that? So we (laughs) went to his office and he put on this this tab and I was like, what's that all about, man? I mean, I just didn't even know. He said, I become a a slave of God. It's a signification of that, that I'm not not a person, I'm a servant. I was like, oh, that's, that's different. And then he went through the rite of confession. And there was a moment where he said, now confess your sins. And so for the next 15 minutes, I confess my sins. You think that confession of sins is just like, it just like goes like that. But if you dig down and you really go along the paths of where your sin takes you, you will be amazed at how sin has taken hold in your life. I was talking with somebody recently and her, their daughter had Lyme's disease. You know, if you have Lyme's disease, and, and this is what they were telling me, I'm not a doctor, and if you take care of it with antibiotics within the first year, it'll, it'll take care of it. But they had not caught it. It had been misdiagnosed. And so the Lyme's disease had borne down into her body to the extent that recently they had to take out part of her intestines. That's what sin can do to us. It can bear down into our life, and if we do not deal with it, it will simply make the dark night darker. And so then he, I confessed my sins to him, and then he said, you have shown true compunction. I was like, uh, you mean I'm, I was here on time? He's like, no, no, that, it means remorse. I'm like, man, you guys use big words. It means true remorse. And he said, if you feel anything from now on, it is not guilt, it is shame. I was like, Oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. And so when I would feel these old things come up, I would just identify, that's not guilt. That's shame. And I can deal with shame in a different way. And so we have to think about detaching from sin. So once we do that, once we confess our sins, then the next thing is just to accept forgiveness. So just accept it. That's hard for a lot of us. A lot of us have done something that we think that we cannot be forgiven for, and I just have to tell you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you don't accept forgiveness, it can make the dark night darker. So we need to detach from sin. Here's the next thing. We need to be a child. Be a child. Oftentimes, uh, when I'm preaching, the points that I make 
are really active. You know, like I would say something like, uh, you know, grab on to your birthright. Like I originally had said, you know, you know claim your birthright on this. But I, I just thought, no, a lot of what's going on in the dark night of the soul are these needs for us to sort of allow God to move into our heart. And so this is about being a child. And so Paul goes on in Romans and he talks about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And he says, you know, the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. And then he goes on and he says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And sonship there is a term referring to the full legal standing of adopted male heir in Roman culture. And he's applying that to all believers, male and female. And then he says this, Romans 8, 15. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we detach from our sin and then we move into the love of God. The dark night of the soul is about getting rid of these attachments that keep us from the love of God. And here's this phrase, you know, when we cry, Abba, Father. So let's all just say, Abba, Father, just, you know, together. Abba, Father. It it is an Aramaic word that means father. It was a word that children from a young age would use all the way up into adulthood. You know, I'll, I'll see children in different kinds of families call their, their, their father and mother the childhood name. Like I have a really close family and they call their mother and father mama and papa. And, and all of the daughters are like, you know, 23 and 24 and 25. They're like beyond that age and yet it's a family name. It's what you say. And actually this is a great family name to call God our father. Now, When we call God our father, where we're calling him, we could say daddy or my dear father. It's not to trigger you because this is not to say that God is a man. And you may have had a very, very bad relationship with your father as a man. God is our father, our spiritual father, the source of everything. And one of our most complicated attachments is the attachment we have to our parents, father and mother whether they were good parents or not. If they were good, we attached to them as our source and stay. If they were difficult, we attach our feelings of hurt to them. And so in in order to move from that attachment, we need to move into the full love of God. Now, I, I grew up in a family where my mother is Japanese. She was born in 1931, and she married my father in the mid-50s. I read an article in the Washington Post this past fall and it talked about these women and I had never read anything like it because one of the experiences you have growing up with a Japanese mother from Japan is that English is a distant second language, especially for us. So we haven't had really deep conversations. We love each other, we care for each other, but we haven't had those kind of conversations or even informational conversations. And so I was reading this, and one of the things they said about the thousands and thousands of Japanese women who married American servicemen is that they did it as an economic move. And so oftentimes, there was a feeling among the children that the mother and father didn't really love each other. 
You know how in the baby boomer generation, they say, you know, they, they don't say love to each other as you're growing up as a child. You're like, I wish they would say they loved each other. But for this particular thing, it was way beyond that. It was almost like a quasi-arranged marriage. And I did not realize that until the fall. And so I looked at that and I thought, well, that answers a lot of things for me. You know, my father died when I was 80. He was in a car accident, died the same day. And so I haven't grown up with a father. And I've grown up with a Japanese mother who is distant and hard to relate to. And so when I entered into the church, I found that God as my father was the most important thing that I could know and understand. But the attachments to my hurts and feelings, they also had to go. And over the course of my life, they've been slowly but surely falling away. And you may find yourself in a position or a place where you have certain feelings about your your parents. You don't know what to think about them. And then when you start thinking about God, you're like, if God is like that, I don't want to have anything to do with God. God is not like that. God is your father. In fact, if you outlive your parents, your attachments to your parents will also fall away. And you will be left with God as your father, solely and simply. And so it's a good idea to start moving into that love because God wants you to know this word, God loves you. He is your father. You know, I, I obsess over my children. I do. I mean, I'm like all the time thinking about them. You know, they call, if they call me on the phone, it's, a, it's an immediate call back. I want to know what's going on. I, you know, I want to hear what, what is happening. God's connection to us as father is infinitely greater. (laughs) And that's really helpful in the dark night of the soul when you feel alone, when you feel alien to God, you remember that God actually loves you as a father. Here's the next thing. Let God pray. Let God pray. And this is a reference to the need for us to detach from disciplines as our relationship with God. God is a person, not not a thing. He is no thing. It was interesting, Gerald May was talking about the dark night of the soul and talking about these Spaniards, St. John of the Cross, and he would say that for them, God was nada, no thing. And I thought that was a really important thing because I'm all the time engaging with God with things. And so here's the passage in Romans. It's a really amazing passage. Romans 8, 26. And he's talking about our connection to the spirit, how the spirit is with us. We don't have a spirit of slavery, but a a spirit of sonship. And we're children and heirs with God. And then he goes further. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Uh, the translation I've grown up with all my life is with sighs too deep for words. This is an NIV. I, would, I, write, I like the RSV version, with sighs too deep for words. Now, just as a, a way of kind of accessing that, Let's just take a deep breath in. Okay, take a deep breath in. Uh, 
and sigh. That, in your experience, is what God is accessing and what God is doing in praying for us. The commentator that I was trained by in seminary says, an inability to pray is met by God's spirit who in himself expresses to God prayers that perfectly match the will of God. So you're, imagine you're confused and you don't know God, you, God feels alien to you, and then you have this discipline that you've been engaging in all your life. And, and I've been praying a lot my whole life as a pastor. I never stop praying, but there are times where I'm like, I don't, I don't really know what this is all about. And in preparation for this message, looking at this, I realized that when I'm really, really confused, and there have been many times, and I don't really know what to pray, like, I can't trust myself to pray for the will of God. I just can't. Because what I want, I know that God isn't going to give me. It's like, you know, what I really like, God, is the equivalent of a parking space. And I was visiting some friends in New York City, and I was like, should I park in New Jersey and take a train? And I'm like, no, you can park. We're, they were down on Bleecker Street, and it's a friend of mine, she and her husband, he, she's teaching at New York University. I'm like, okay. So I followed my GPS to Bleecker Street, pulled in a, into their place, unpacked, and then he got in the car, and literally the first parking space that was open was right in front of their building, and I pulled in. I was like, wow. That's not so bad. God is good. Then I had to, I had to move it to the other side of the street because they sweep the streets in New York. I don't know. So he's like, we need to go out on Monday night because, you know, it's kind of hard to find those parking spaces. And we, the earlier we do it, the better. I'm like, oh, you know, because I'm like, I'm a little freaking out because I'm a Midwest guy. I'm like, oh, New York City. So we walk out on Monday night at 7.15. And as we're walking up to my car, there's a car right across the street, right across the street. And they're getting in the car. And he says, I think they're leaving. Let's go see if this is the right one. Yeah, this is the right one. So he stands in the parking space. And I literally went, huh? I was like, oh, God is so good. Man, he is so good. That's what we pray for. And those are good things to pray for. But when you kind of push those out to greater things, your job, your career, relationships, all of those, those are things. And God is no thing. And so oftentimes, we don't know how to pray. And in those times, we let God pray for us. It's been a relief to my soul to know that God loves me so much that he's actually, he's actually praying for me. He actually knows better than I do what I need. And I don't have to feel guilty that I'm not praying the prayers and saying the right things and saying the formulas because that's sometimes how we feel about prayer. We got to put it in the right way. It's not that way because it's a relationship. Now, what I want for my children is the best thing for them. I want that all the time. God loves us infinitely more. And so we need to be in the debt to him. We need to trust him. There's a poet named Samuel Menashe, and he says these three very short lines. Why not be in debt to one who can give you whatever you need? Why not be in debt to God who can give you whatever you need? And so in the dark night of the soul, when we don't know what's going on, we don't know where to go, we don't know where to turn, we can trust that God will be with us. So God loves you and prays for you. So let God pray for you. And here's this final thing. 
And that is to trust that God is good. And Paul says this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now the good here, we may think of it as a thing again, but again, God is no thing. And so as we're praying for our lives in the midst of difficulty and suffering, we want it to go back to the way it was. But that time, that dark night of the soul, gives us an opportunity to move into the true good. What's the true good? It's not the parking spaces. It's not moving into that. The true good is no thing. The true good is God himself. And so when you're praying and trusting that God is good, what we're, what we're praying for is that we would know and understand that God loves us and the good that we have is our relationship with him. Now, if you're feeling alien from God and you're sitting in the back row and you're feeling on the margins, that feels like an odd thing to say. And yet, this is the guidance of the dark night. The dark night moves us away from attachments that will not help us. They will not take us to where we need to go into a love that we have for God. So we need to trust that God was good, that God is good. And so ultimately, we say with Paul that if God is for us, who can be against us? Those phrases, if you were to go through Romans 8 and just highlight the apex statements, you would find yourself being guided in this dark night of the soul. And as you go through the dark night of the soul, guess what happens? The dawn. The dawn. It comes. It does. And in that dawn, through the dark night of the soul, you don't have a new career. You don't have new relationships. You don't have a new place to live. You don't have a new home. You have the one the one who loves you, you have God. I'm going to call the band up, and we're going to sing together a really important song that's been used by a lot of people over the centuries, and it's called, It Is, it is Well With My Soul. And as we, as we sing this, I've just found, as I, I sing it, I just kind of open my hands up to God and just say, God, you know, it doesn't feel well, but it will be well when I'm not feeling good. Or if you're in a place where it is well, to open yourself up to the Lord. So let's stand together and sing this.